This is the Fearless Presentations podcast, the fastest, easiest way to reduce public speaking fear. Want to absolutely eliminate public speaking fear? This podcast is the answer. Here's the guy who literally wrote the book on Fearless Presentations, Doug Stannard. Welcome back to the Fearless Presentations podcast brought to you by the Leaders Institute and fearlesspresentations.com. I'm your host, Doug Stannard, president of the Leaders Institute, and this podcast helps people just like you get rid of public speaking fear and increase your success by increasing your confidence when you communicate. Today we have part one of a two-episode topic, uh, the step-by-step process that I went through to go from a poor, skinny trailer park kid from Arkansas to one of the top public speaking coaches in the world. So hopefully my story will be both inspirational and informative to you. This podcast is brought to you by fearlesspresentations.com. I, I, I know a lot of you have subscribed to the podcast. You know, a lot of you who have subscribed to the podcast are graduates of the two-day Fearless Presentations class. And a lot of you are actually folks who maybe looked into attending one of the Fearless Presentations classes but wanted to kind of listen to a few podcasts to see if we were really on the level before you actually paid the fee, which is fine. That's great. That's what it's here for. One of the great things about being a graduate of the program, though, is that you can come back and take the class a second time for free as long as we have space available in the class. So if you're a graduate and you're looking for a refresher, make sure and check out the schedule of upcoming classes on fearlesspresentations.com. If you're actually one of those folks who are just checking us out, you may want to if you're actually looking at taking a class with us anyway, you might want to hurry because anytime I remind graduates on a podcast about that policy, the all of a sudden the spaces fill up very quickly. So if you're looking at taking a class, make sure and go very quickly and register for one, and hopefully we'll have space available. So let's get started with today's podcast. So we're going to do something a little bit different on today's podcast. Um I was talking with my daughter. She's 16, and she she started her first job about a year or so ago. She worked for a um, um, a fashion store uh, close to the mall, and I think she enjoyed it uh, for about three weeks, and then decided to quit. And it was funny because she came up to me as uh, after you know the day before she quit and said, "Hey, Dad, I I you know I really like my job, but." I don't think it's really what I'm meant for. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I want a job like yours where you can sit around in your pajamas all day. <laughs> so so uh, a lot of times folks will kind of come up to me and they'll say, Doug, how in the world did you go from, from you know, being a, uh, you know, a kid who grew up in rural Arkansas? I can't even say rural, you know. How did you do that? How did you go from that to being a, a professional speaker and 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 you know to to be kind of humble, uh, you know, a fairly sought after speaker as well. I mean, there are a lot of folks that hire me to come out every year just to to coach them and just to to come out and teach them some of the stuff that I've learned along the way. And it, I, the whole process was was actually fairly simple is a good way to say it. Simple but not easy. You know, so it took it took a long period of time in order for me to figure out how to conquer that fear of public speaking myself. And then in addition to that, how to actually help other people conquer that that fear of public speaking was a, a totally different thing. So I, I wanted to kind of just give you a quick little little um 
historical view of where I came from, where I started, and and hopefully it'll be kind of inspirational for you and kind of teach you something along the way. Uh, I, I actually grew up in a little town called Pilarm, Arkansas. Pilarm is a it's a tiny town pretty close to, to Little Rock and North Little Rock, Arkansas. I'd say about 30 miles or so from, from each one of those, those um, kind of semi-metropolitan areas anyway. But it was out in the really rural part of, of Arkansas. Uh, I, I've never actually found the the population statistic for Pilarm, Arkansas, but I can tell you it's at least 20 people because I knew that many that were there. Probably not a whole lot more than that, though. So it's a fairly small, small city out in the middle of the of the country. And from the time that I was up until the time I was maybe, you know, four or five years old, I, I actually lit, we my family lived in a in a trailer home. And, and when I was five, my dad, my mom and dad bought a um, uh, two bedroom shack out in the middle of, of Pilarm. And, and this was really it was a, a tiny little home, didn't have air conditioner or anything like that. So it was not, uh, you know, we, we were living pretty frugally. That same year, my dad started a one man construction company. So basically, he was a, a house flipper before house flipping was cool. And unlike what you see on reality TV shows where, you know, house flipping is, is um, you know, is, is something that can make you wealthy. Uh, in in rural rural Arkansas, that wasn't a very wealth building type thing, and so we were always living, you know, very meagerly. So basically, what Dad would do is he would buy a condemned home, in you know, like the ghetto of Little Rock, and then he would go in and just gut the entire house, and then remodel it, and then sell it, hopefully for a profit. And the biggest challenge that he had, though, was that, in fact, I realize today it's it's really obvious the challenge that he had was that he tried to do everything himself. He was dad was such a great carpenter, and and he was really good at what he did. He thought he would be able to save money by just doing all the work himself because he, he could do plumbing, he could do electric, elect, electrical work, he could do, you know, heating and air conditioning, he could do the framing and construction, and so he just kind of did everything. The problem with that though is it took way too long, and so what would happen is we would, um, you know, he would he would finish one of these houses. And then he'd put it on the market, and hopefully it would sell fairly quickly. Sometimes it didn't, but uh, when that when that house sold, the proceeds from that house would have to be used not only for the next project. So he'd have to buy another house, gut it, and and be able to buy all the materials from those proceeds. But also, we had to live, and so sometimes it would take him a year to go through that whole process. And so I learned very at a very early age that you know because Dad was an excellent carpenter. And the houses that he refurbished were just exquisite. His business wasn't really profitable, though, because of the time it took him to do the work all by himself. So um, as a public speaking coach today, one of the it's a it's a real lesson for me because I, I know people that go and they read blogs and they listen to podcasts and they watch YouTube videos and they may even go to Toastmasters or some of the other um, support mechanisms for learning public speaking. But in reality, they're really trying to conquer that nervousness by themselves, just like my dad was trying to do with the construction company. And as a result, it can take a long time to to um, to learn things that way or to finish projects that way. So lesson number one that I learned at a very early age was that speed and quality is much more profitable than just quality. So the um, the. The only commerce in this little town that I lived in was about, basically for about 10 miles on either side of my house were, were these two liquor stores that were within walking distance of my home. 
And my little brother and I would, you know, we'd look for loose change on their seat cushions. And we'd also dig through, you know, trash cans for Coke bottles. At that, at that time, stores would actually give you a dime for a Coke bottle if you returned it. So wh- whatever we were able to scrounge up, you know, the um, quarters or nickels or dimes, we it, we we could actually take down the liquor stores and we'd, we'd buy candy and Cokes. And sometimes we'd put some away for savings. But, you know, we... You know, we didn't have a whole lot, so so anytime we got some change, a lot of times we would spend it. And um, what one year though, in in elementary school, my uh, the the school had a candy drive, and the the deal with this particular candy drive was that um, all you had to do was sell one case of chocolate bars, which I think it was like 20 chocolate bars. And if you sold one case, you got your name put into a hat. And at the end of the drive, the principal would go and draw one of those names out of the hat, and they got a cash prize. In fact, it was there were actually three different prizes. The, the first name that got drawn would get $25. The second name would get $50. And the third one would get $100. So... So you know it was it was cash and and from my perspective it was a lot of cash you know because we were used to to living off of the quarters and nickels and dimes and pennies right so so I you know I I took my case of candy out door to door in our neighborhood and like I said this is very rural Arkansas so it was it was very sparsely populated so it took me forever it took the entire thirty days for me to to sell that one case of candy and and by the way I was terrified you know I I mean I was a fairly small, shy, skinny kid, didn't like to talk to adults and much less, you know, I I just didn't, I didn't like to talk to adults in general, but much less ask them to buy something from me while I was interrupting their, their dinner. That was actually a terrifying prospect for me, but I did it. You know, it took me, like I said, it took me the entire months and I got a whole bunch of no's, but I eventually, you know, sold that entire case and got my name put into the hat. So on the day of the drawing, I was so nervous because I knew that any one of those cash prizes would, you know, would kind of change my life temporarily. And and the first name was drawn. You know, the principal kind of reached into the hat and he pulled out that first name. And this was for the $25. And the winner was Barry J. Tubbs. Barry was my best friend in, in kindergarten. And, and he and I were had, had become pretty good friends. You know, well, I mean, we were friends forever anyway. But uh, so I was happy that Barry got the $25. And, and the big prizes were still coming. But, you know, I was still a little disappointed because that $25 would have been great. So then the principal drew the second name and it was for the $50 prize. And it was also Barry. <laughs> so Barry got that one as well. And that's when reality kind of hit me. I was like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. How come Barry won both of those? And, and you know, because I, I was confused because I assume, you know, because they said if you sold a case, you'd get your name put in. I didn't realize that if you sold multiple cases, you got your name put in multiple times, right? So I was I, now I'm 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 thinking oh my gosh I missed a great opportunity here I should have I should have gone out and sold more I, I don't think I could have at the time uh, but uh, but it, but anyway I was really disappointed so so the uh, so the principal pulled pulled the third name out of the hat this was for the one hundred dollar prize this was the big huge money and by the way that was this was back in what that would have been nineteen seventy. Seven, maybe seventy-six, something like that. So it was a it was a very uh, long time ago. So a hundred dollars that would be like probably my guess would be like a thousand dollars now. So a big cash prize anyway. And um, and and of course the name that got pulled up was Barry as well. So so he he got he basically walked away with a hundred and seventy-five dollars in cash. And, you know, so I learned something interesting that day. I, I learned that selling is a very well compensated profession. And and uh, and I've kind of used that throughout my career as well to 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 actually increase my own wealth. So 
the next year, my little brother and I um, had, you know, my, my little brother, by the way, at the time was in kindergarten. So, so um, he had the cuteness factor. So I, we kind of used that to our advantage a little bit as well. But we came up with a plan. We, we realized that, and by the way, the, one of the reasons why we were able to implement this plan was that Barry had moved away. And so, you know, the, that, that left the door wide open for a new salesperson to come in. Um, oh, by the way, I, I don't think I mentioned this, but the previous year, I think Barry sold 50 cases of candy. That's why he had his name, name in so many times. And, uh, and he, he sold 50 cases in the, in the 30 days that I sold one single case. So we knew we were going to have to step up our game, you know, quite a bit. So, so we, we came up with this idea. We knew that going door to door in the, the really, you know, um, you know, far out in the woods kind of place that we lived was, was not a good way to, to sell a lot of candy. And so, but we realized also that there was a, a liquor store down the road, Sody's liquor store that was, that was, you know, maybe a block and a half away from our house. And we knew that there was traffic going in and out of Sody's all day long. It was, in fact, it was weird. I mean, there were people buying alcohol at, you know, nine ten o'clock in the morning sometimes so so we stood outside the store and we asked every single person who walked into the store to buy candy from us and, and by the way i was way less nervous doing that than what i was going and knocking on on people's door because i wasn't interrupting anybody's dinner and what was what was nice about it was that when people got out of their their cars a lot of times they would kind of make eye contact and they'd see that we'd have candy. And so they would kind of smile at us. It was a little bit easier to approach somebody. So it was less nerve wracking than going and knocking on somebody's door. People were actually coming to us and we sold out our first day and, and we, we went back day after day. We didn't actually sell out every single day, but we sold way more candy that year than, than any other student did. And we got great prizes for it. So one of the lessons that I learned there was that most people who have a nervousness about something, public speaking or whatever it is, they want to eliminate that nervousness. They want to eliminate that be- that fear by just eliminating the opportunity. Hey, if I don't speak, I don't have to feel nervous, right? But the most successful business people, though, are the ones that, that look to make the presentation less stressful. If you do that, then the nervousness drops considerably automatically. So lesson number two was look for ways to make fearful situations less fearful and you'll have much better success. So the elementary school that I went to had two really distinct groups. There was a that you know the real preppy preppy kids. They lived in the the playing community around the golf course, and then there were those of us who were bussed in to come to school every morning from the really poor poor kind of area. And it was it was pretty hard to fit in. You know, I was I was shy and I was a skinny kid. So I got picked on a lot. You know, my clothes were all shabby and I had buck teeth. So, you know, in addition to that, you know, I was so small that um, the other kids, you know, kind of towered over me. So one day at recess, this kid, Ken, who who was a, he was a kid who got put back a year. So he should have been in the sixth grade. He was actually in the fifth grade with the, with us. And uh, that, that one day, though, he we got into a disagreement, and he pinned me to the he you know wrestled me down to the ground, pinned me, pinned my shoulders down to the ground, and just started beating the tar out of me. I mean, just he just was way lazy. His his size and strength, you know, were were too much for me to handle, and and um, you know, and he just kept punching me over and over and over in the face, and there was nothing I could do. I mean, I was I was helpless. I, I guess eventually he just got tired because he eventually just got up and stopped and and left and. and and I was there, you know, uh, with the whole what seemed like anyway, the whole school looking at me, bleeding on the on the ground, and I was so dejected. I was so um, 
I felt so helpless. I mean, it was one of those situations where, where, um, it, it, a real low point anyway. And so, um, I decided that, that, you know, I, I, I didn't want to go through my life being the small skinny kid that everybody picked on anymore. I, I knew I had to make some kind of change. And so one of the things that I convinced my dad to do was I, I had him, he bought me a, a weightlifting set from a garage sale. So it was, it was a fairly inexpensive investment for him and I, and I, and I had to pay him back, but it was, it was a, a pretty good investment for me because by the time I entered the eighth grade, so this was like three years later, maybe four years later, I had, uh, my, my, my body had changed pretty significantly because I was basically working out every day. I was, I, I, I was committed, you know, every, if, if at any point I felt like, um, like, uh, you know, I was wasting my time or something like that. I would just think about that day that Ken beat the crap out of me. And it was an easy way to, to, to kind of push through the, the pain and, and, uh, and work a little bit harder. So, um, when, but when I got into eighth grade, I saw that one of the high school kids had a t-shirt on it. It had, it had the word 200 pound club on it. It had a, a picture of a weightlifter. And I was like, well, I asked one of my friends, what the heck is that? What is the 200 pound club? And my friend kind of t- told me that in the high school, in high school anyway, the football team, when they would max out on their weights, if they, uh, anyone that could, could lift 200 pounds got a t-shirt that said 200 pound clubs. And there was actually a 250 pound club and a 300 pound club. So if you could bench press 300 pounds, you got a, a really cool t-shirt that very few people in the, in the entire school had. So, so I set that as one of my goals and it was less than six months from the time that I saw that t-shirt for the first time that I was there in the gym and the whole gym was just going nuts because I was at the age of 13, I became the youngest person in that school to actually join the 200 pound club. And then a year later, I made it into the 250 pound club. So it was weird because that, that incident that, that, uh, was really one of the most embarrassing things actually became a real triumph for me. It was one of those things that, that pushed me to work hard and overcome that, that challenge that I had. So when I was 15, my dad got a, a, a great job in Temple, Texas. So we, we moved from Arkansas into, into Texas. I've been in Texas my, ever since then anyway. And, uh, when I arrived to the new school though, it was, it was interesting because I didn't have any history. Nobody knew that I was the small, skinny bucktooth kid because by then my permanent teeth had come in. They were a little bit straighter, you know, still weren't perfect, but, you know, a little straighter than what my baby teeth were. And since I had no history, I, 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 nobody knew that I was the third string bench warmer in the seventh, on the seventh grade football team. So all of a sudden folks were kind of seeing me for who I truly was, not for, that mental image that I had created for myself. They were, they were seeing me as the, the stocky kid, the strong kid who got things done because that's what I'd grown into over the last, the, the last couple of years. And the coaches at my new, on my new football team, they, they loved me because I had a, I had a, a work ethic that was much stronger than most of the other kids that were there. And so I went through my, my junior high and, and high school career playing football just loved it i mean i loved the sport and when uh, when i was a, a senior at the um at the um uh, the the football dinner at the end of the year spike dykes the head coach of texas tech was the guest speaker and um and during that meeting that coach dykes was speaking at that my team honored me with an award 
that were and it was voted on by the players and it was one of those things that that um, I mean the only one award was awarded by the players the others were awarded by the the coaches and so my the the players on the team voted me you know to to kind of get this award and so I got to go up and accept accept that award in front of Spike Dykes and at the end of the 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 uh, banquet one of the coaches my strength coach the guy who probably knew me the best on the on the team or as on the coaching staff anyway he introduced me to to coach Dykes and and we chatted for a few minutes and and as as um, coach Dykes was kind of walking away he kind of turned to me and he said he said you know son I can't give you a scholarship but if you walk on at Texas Tech and you prove yourself I'll make sure that you get a good education, and that's all I needed. I mean, this is one of the one of the most well-known coaches in Texas is saying, "Hey, come play football for me." You know, I didn't get a lot of I didn't get a lot of didn't get any offers or anything like that. So it was a verbal conversation that I had with Coach Dykes that that um, kind of spurred me on, and I did. I, I walked on at, at Texas Tech and. In the fall, I was I was a, a Red Raider, and it was one of the coolest things that that um, kind of happened to me, especially in my college career. Because, I mean, throughout throughout the the few years that I was playing for for Tech, I got to I got to meet and I got to work with and become friends with guys like Zach Thomas, who was he was a linebacker for the Miami Dolphins and the Dallas Cowboys, and Lynn Elliott, who got Super Bowl ring for the Dallas Cowboys, and Sammy Walker, who played for the Pittsburgh Steelers, and I mean, some of these guys that that you see on on uh, Sunday, Monday night, were were people that I I went to school with, and um, the uh, and probably the the one of the best contacts that I got there, and and. One of the, um, the the people that inspired me to to kind of help other folks and, and really become a teacher was Coach Gary Gaines. Coach Gaines, if you ever saw the movie Friday Night Lights or if you read the book Friday Night Lights, it was about Coach Gaines. Coach Gaines was the uh, the head coach of that that team, uh, Odessa Permian, and uh, he was played by Billy Bob Thornton in in the movie Friday Night Lights. And by the way, which was pretty amazing because watching Billy Bob Thornton play him I mean he he had coach Gaines down it was it was a pretty good likeness of him but I learned more about leadership and team building from coach Gaines probably from any other source in my life just in the the short time that I was with him just a a fantastic leader a fantastic educator and I patterned a lot of the things that I do as a speaking coach or as a coach uh, based on some of the stuff that I learned from him so so in essence if you kind of think back that I owe my education I owe my career as a speaking coach and and um, and really my success to a punk kid of the fifth grade who beat the crap out of me I mean that was a huge obstacle for me to come up to overcome but once I did it opened up a lot of doors in my life and I think a lot of people see that especially when they when they have that fear of public speaking when they when they overcome that that challenge it opens up a, a lot of doors so those obstacles lesson number three is those obstacles that you overcome a lot of times become your most significant strengths especially in the workplace so so up until that point in my life really the the thing that was holding me back most was my own self image and once i i moved to texas and the self image that i the image that i created for myself had changed all of a sudden, it opened up a lot of doors, um, and I saw the same thing happen with with my my nervousness and my shyness and my my public speaking fear. So I, I call the next part of my life kind of the feel the fear and do it anyway part of my life, and how I went from a, from timid to fearless, and really in the in about a year or so. So when I when I started playing football for for Coach Dykes, he kept his word. I got my education. 
But because I was paying for it myself, you know, my college days were pretty taxing. So I would get up at 4.30 in the morning, I'd start lifting weights and, and run. And then from 8 o'clock until usually around 2 o'clock most days, I was in class. And the reason why I was taking such a full load was because I was paying for school myself. And and I was still pretty poor, really poor. So I, I, I realized that most of the money that I was spending on college was really for my room and board. So if I could get out early, I could save myself tens of thousands of dollars. So I was I was working hard to, to make the most of the education that I had. Then from 2 o'clock to 3 o'clock was when I would run to the field house and start watching film. From 3 o'clock to 6.30, it was football practice. And then from 7 to 9, I would, I would do odd jobs. Basically, anything that I could do to make a little bit of money to, to you know, keep a roof over my head. And then from 9 till midnight was when I would spend time studying. And, and sometimes I had to... to um, you know, study a little less in order to, in order to, you know, get that extra money in order to kind of survive. So, but, uh, but then I would, a lot of times I would accumulate a little bit of debt throughout the school year because there was just only so many, so few hours that I could work. But during the summer I'd work full time and I'd pay off all my credit card debt and I'd save up a little bit, as much money as I could to kind of take me through the next year. And it was working pretty well. So I was studying business management and my sophomore year, Qualified for a scholarship from Phillips Petroleum, and uh, it was set aside for juniors and seniors. And I was a sophomore, but I was already halfway through my sophomore year when I when I started because I'd taken so many extra classes, and so I, I qualified for it uh, basically a semester before before I, I probably should have. But I, I did. I got that. I got that scholarship and. All I had to do was change my my degree plan slightly. So I was already a business management student, but there was a specific type of business management degree called petroleum land management that was it was a specific degree for uh, land work in the in the uh, petroleum industry in the oil and gas industry. And so I, I figured, hey, if Phillips is going to pay for my school, I'm, I'm, I will I will take them up on switching my degree plan. And and by the way, just as an aside, you know, one of the reasons why I kind of made that change and why it was easy for to make that change was the popular TV show back in the 80s, probably maybe in the early 90s, I don't know, was uh, Dallas, you know, and J.R. Ewing was a millionaire. And I knew that if I wanted to be successful, if I wanted to be a millionaire, hey, the oil business was a good place to do it. So, so, so it was, it was a pretty easy, easy um, transition to make. So uh, I, uh, so what, after I changed my degree plan that summer, I applied for an internship with Atlantic Richfield Arco and, and uh, they accepted me. I was the youngest, I was the youngest intern ever accepted into the program. So although I'd actually come to Texas Tech to play football in hopes of getting a scholarship for, for playing, it was actually my work ethic in the academics that actually, that, that, that got me the scholarship that, that I really needed. So, so lesson number four was a strong work ethic. A lot of times we'll overcome most of those deficiencies that we have. So the summer that I spent at Arco was phenomenal. I mean, I was like I said, I was pretty young, but and and that was really probably out, out of all the things that I experienced in my in my um, college career, it was, it was kind of the peak because at that point in my college career, um, I had a I had a scholarship, <laughs> I had a nice job, all my bills were paid, and I was expecting in the fall to to go back and and make the travel squad on the on the football team. So I mean, I was on cloud nine and. One of, in fact, that summer um, for ARCA, one of the projects that I worked on, I worked on a bunch of stuff, but one of the projects that was that was 
really memorable was I, I ended up helping sell a, a gas plant in Enid, Enid Oklahoma. And um, I, I, it was just one of those things that, I mean, here I was 20 years old. I was putting, putting together marketing proposals and scheduling tours for prospective buyers and working with the company attorneys to, to conduct the sealed bid auction and transfer ownership over to the new owner. So, I mean, I mean that kind of experience in business was, was priceless, especially at, at such a young age. And at the end of the summer, though, I had to travel to Dallas to give a presentation to my boss and my boss's boss and the other interns and their bosses and some of the corporate vice presidents who flew in from, from Bakersfield. And about a week before the presentation, my boss called me into his office and he told me that, that he had received word from corporate that one of the that that since the price of of oil was so low that Arco was going to be downsizing quite a bit, and he said that unlike in years past when an intern was almost assured of becoming a second year intern, and and they were they were looking at having a whole lot fewer spots in in the next year, so he suggested I spend you know a lot extra time really focusing on that presentation because it would be the one place for me to really showcase what I'd done, the, all those accomplishments that I had throughout that that summer that I was working there. So I remember walking out of his office terrified. I mean, it was, I mean, again, I'm still the shy, nervous kid, even though I've, I've now had some experience on the football field that has helped me and, and had some success in, in sports that, that kind of helped me gain confidence. But I, boy, speaking in front of a group, especially in front of all those vice presidents and everything and, and do and showcasing myself, talking about myself was going to be really, really uncomfortable for me. And you know, one of the things that I realized was was you know, it, well, up until that point, up until that time that my boss called me into his his office, I could see my whole future laid out for me. I mean, I I I was one of twelve students in the entire world that this four, number four company on the Fortune five hundred list chose as an intern. I mean, it was a very elite kind of group, and and. Uh, what I realized after that meeting, though, was that if I performed poorly in that presentation, I could lose it all, you know. So to make matters worse, that the spring before that internship, I'd taken a business communication class. And my grade for that class for that entire semester was based on three presentations that I had to deliver. And, and I got a 94 on the first presentation. I got an 84 on the second presentation. And I got a 74 on the third presentation. So the mental image in my mind was every time I give a presentation, I get worse. And and I hadn't delivered any more presentations since the end of that class. And so I'm sitting here going, oh, my God, I'm scheduled to give a 64% out of 100 presentation. And that's not going to be enough to get me what I'm looking for. So, uh, so I was nervous. And, and the closer that that the date got for me to present the more nervous I, I the, the nervousness kind of increased exponentially so when I walked in the room I realized that I was the only person in the room not wearing a jacket because at the ja- at the time I didn't even own a jacket and the first intern got up to, to speak and had everyone laughing within a few sentences and and of course I'm looking at my notes and that I had kind of jotted down in front of me and and I didn't have any jokes I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't have any jokes. I'm sitting there trying to think of a joke. And the next presenter got up and she had a number of colored slides as visual aids. Now, if you keep in mind that this was pre-PowerPoint, this was pre-projector days. This was back when folks kind of used overheads. And and so colored slides, was, was a, it was a really big deal back then. And most everything was in black and white. 
at least you know on on, uh, on um, overhead projectors. So. I, and, and I didn't have, any, and, I, and what hit me at that moment was I don't have any visual aids. I, I don't have any jokes. I don't have any visual aids. So I'm, I'm already nervous, and my nervousness is just kind of ratcheting up minute by minute. So when I, when I was called to speak, you know, my palms were just so sweating. I mean, they were just sweating profusely, and um, the, the the panic was really setting in. And I speak pretty fast anyway, but when I get nervous, I speak really, really fast. So I, de- I delivered my entire 15-minute speech in about, I would say, about three and a half minutes. It was fast. I, and I didn't have a great ending, so I just finished my last sentence, and I just sat down. I didn't have anything else to say, so I just kind of sat down. And the ending was so abrupt that the person leading the meeting wasn't really sure what to do, so she just called a break. And as everyone went you know, to the bathroom and got you know, coffee refills and... And that kind of thing. I, I, I sat in my seat and my, with my head kind of hung low because I knew that no one in the room thought that I did well. I, I mean, I, I, from my perspective, I had blown my big opportunity. That, that career that I had set out, that game plan that I had set out was now just gone in a, in a matter of, a, of three and a half minutes. So I went back to my room in the hotel and, and I, you know, and all I could see in my head was that moment when I was in the fifth grade and I was on the ground and Ken was beating the crap out of me. I mean, that was what I was saying because I felt the same way. I felt helpless. I felt like there was no place I could go, no way to, to survive this. So, you know, but, but, you know, while I'm sitting there in, in my hotel room, I'm going, I, I'm bound to myself. I, public speaking fear is never going to hold me back again. So, you know, I did. I did some studying. I did some research. I, I trained myself. And when the when the um, interviewers came back the next spring to recruit the new batch of interns for Arco, I, I put my name on the list. And uh, what was embarrassing though was that my advisor came up to me about a week or so before they were coming in to to do the uh, interviews, and he said, "Hey, you know, I I did put your name on the list like you asked, but they they uh, the folks who were interviewing said that they didn't want to interview you." And I was crushed. I mean, I'm sitting here going. Man, now, by the way, I have no idea to this day why they chose to not interview me. And it's quite possible that they only interviewed one or two people because they just didn't have a whole lot of positions. Um, but, I, you know, from my in my head anyway, I was like, they didn't interview me because I'm such a terrible speaker. I mean, that's what it was in my head. That's what I was thinking. And so it, it kind of stuck with me. So I was crushed. I ended up getting a a job uh, that summer working in Denver for a much smaller independent oil company. And it it changed my life in a very positive way because that that opportunity was so different than what I had experienced the previous year that it opened up my eyes to a whole lot of new possibilities. So sometimes those those um, those things that knock us down are, are some of the things that, that allow us to open up bigger opportunities, big doors for, uh, for, uh, opportunity anyway. So, so, so at, at that time in my life though, I mean, that was kind of the lowest. So it went from the highest point to like the lowest point within a few months. Um, that, that presentation fiasco was kind of the first step down a road that changed my whole life though. And, and really not only my life, but the lives of hundreds of thousands of speakers for the positive. And, and I'll, I'll kind of show you how that happened. So, so um, 
one of my favorite quotes from as I was as I was studying and and um, trying to come across ways to overcome that public speaking fear, I came across Les Brown. Les Brown is one of my favorite motivational speakers, and one of the things that he says quite often is he says he says when life knocks you down, you have you try to land on your back because if you can look up, you can get up, right? So a very inspirational kind of thought, and and I, I had that kind of going on in my head as I was, as I was starting the, the, you know, my, my quote unquote new career. And uh, so when I, the, the next summer, you know, like I said, I, I got a job working for an independent oil and gas company in, in Denver. It was a guy, a guy, the guy who owned it, his name was Dave Herbley and, and the Herbley Petroleum was the name of the company. Not even sure if they're still around or not, but, but it was a, a small family owned business. And I, the neat thing about what I what I saw during that summer was that, you know, t- t- since Dave was the president and he was the guy who hired me, I saw him have tremendous freedom as a business owner, it, which was interesting because I went to Texas Tech to study business so I could be a business owner. But the whole time that I was there up until that point, they were training me to work for a big corporation. That's how you become rich. You know, you work for a big company and you work your way up through the ranks and hopefully become the CEO. But I kind of watched Dave and I watched, I, I saw his freedom and I, it was an entirely different culture than what I experienced the previous year at Arco. At Arco, we were selling oil properties left and right. We were trying to cut costs. The price of oil was down so low that that it was very difficult for a big company like Arco to make a profit on it. But at the same time, Dave was buying properties left and right, and he was buying them at garage sale prices. So I'm watching him make a fortune off of the same thing that was costing Arco uh, a lot of money. So um, uh, one of the and one of the great things that happened to me that summer was in the middle of the summer, I got a notification from the AAPL, which was the American Association of Petroleum Landmen, big huge association for the the career that I'd chosen. And they had chosen me as their international student of the year. So I'm honored now because especially after the 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 way that my my internship ended the previous year to have something like that kind of turn it around. It was it was basically this, you know, these um, you know, peaks and valleys that were happening very quickly in a in a very short period of time of my, of my life. Um since I since I got the award though, I knew that I was going to have to give a speech. Oh, I hate to do this, but I'm looking at the clock and we're out of time on this episode. So we're going to have to leave that as a cliffhanger. You'll have to tune in next week to find out how I did on that second presentation. So we'll see you on the next Fearless Presentations podcast. Subscribe to this podcast for new public speaking secrets each week. 